Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to episode 133 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head to the northwest of England, near Manchester, to look at an astonishing, incredible case of obsession. As we enter June, I'm sure you'll agree, it only feels right and proper, that today's case should be a Halloween special. But firstly, this is pre-recorded as I'm still out of the country with limited access to the internet. A huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, and for any new supporters to this exclusive club, I will name-check you individually on my return next week. Thank you so much. Your support is so much appreciated. So let's set some context for today's story by taking a look at the music we were listening to at the time, or not, on Halloween 2003. Hole in the Head by the Sugar Babes was at the top spot, followed by Kevin Little, Turn Me On. In the US, it was Beyonce featuring Sean Paul with Baby Boy, And in the Australian album charts, number one for this year was Delta Goodrum with Innocent Eyes. In the news this month, Paul Martin became Prime Minister of Canada, former Iraqi president and lover of rosé wine, Saddam Hussein, was captured near his hometown of Tikrit during Operation Red Dawn by US forces. The Return of the King, the third Lord of the Rings film was released and made $72 million in the opening weekend. Oh, not my thing at all. Are you a fan? At the Ballon d'Or, Juventus Czech midfielder Pavel Nedved was named best football player in Europe, ahead of Arsenal forward Thierry Henry and Milan defender Paolo Maldini. And in UK true crime news, the Sarah murder trial ended at the Old Bailey in London, with Ian Huntley found guilty of two counts of murder. His girlfriend Maxine Carr was found guilty of perverting the course of justice. So today we're in Ratcliffe, with a population approaching 30,000 people. It's about six and a half miles northwest of Manchester, with the disused Manchester Bolton and Berry Canal dissecting the town. Ratcliffe was the birthplace of Oscar-winning film director Danny Boyle and the three-times world champion snooker player, John Spencer. Ex-Marine, 43-year-old Bob Wilkie, lived in Ratcliffe. 2003 had been a really good year for Bob. He met 40-year-old Debbie Bryan at the start of the year and they soon fell in love. Bob adored her two children from a previous relationship and believing in doing the right thing, Bob asked Debbie's dad for permission to marry his daughter. The dad, of course, was delighted at the prospect of someone like Bob joining the family. Debbie accepted his proposal and the future looked really bright as the couple lived together at her house in Radcliffe and she was so good for Bob. For example, just two weeks before we pick up the story on Halloween, Debbie had encouraged Bob to take the first steps in reconciling a long-standing disagreement Bob had had with his older brother Billy. You know, just one of those arguments about nothing in families that in time can take on significance. Bob nervously picked up the phone, but Billy was of course pleased to hear from his little brother, 
he'd missed spending time with him, and soon the two were chatting away, and Billy had agreed to come to watch Bob and Debbie get married. Bob wasn't so keen on the rise of the popularity of Halloween. He was a really respectful man who believed in doing things the right way, and he was worried about older and more vulnerable people who could find it intimidating and scary. But luckily, this year the night passed off peacefully, until around 1.30am when Bob was in bed and heard an altercation outside. He could hear somebody knocking, then hammering at his next-door neighbour's house, but she wasn't answering the door. As the knocking continued, Bob, with two young children in the house, went out to investigate, dressed in his boxer shorts. He went outside to be greeted by a woman dressed in a sheet ghost costume and a scream mask. Bob asked what was going on, and he asked the masked figure to keep the noise down, but she told him to go back inside and to mind his own business. He then told her to take the mask off, but the masked figure didn't make any movement to do so, so Bob approached closer and attempted to remove the mask himself. Hearing Bob talking to this woman, Bob's neighbour, Diane Lomax, whose door the woman had been knocking on, now felt able to open the door to her house. But as she did so, she witnessed a woman pull out a sawn-off shotgun balanced on a homemade shoulder sling and hidden under a white sheet covering her body, and shoot Bob in the stomach, leaving him writhing on the ground outside his front door as she fled into the night. The sheets covering her were splattered in blood, and Diane's screams were ringing in her ears as she fled the scene. Bob Wilkie died at the scene almost immediately. He was just 43 years old, with everything to live for. The woman who had murdered him, Heather Stevenson Snell, got back to her red Ford Escort, dumped the sheet and gun in the back seat, and headed back on the M62 to drive to her home in York. The 47-year-old cursed to herself how the evening had gone. She had intended to kill 39-year-old Diane Lomax, not her next-door neighbour. Why hadn't Diane come out when she'd knocked on the door? Traffic police clocked Heather Stevenson Snell's car at about 1.40am. The car was driving so slowly, they suspected it was probably a drunk driver, trying to compensate by being overly careful. They flagged the car down to the hard shoulder, and the woman driver who spoke to them appeared to be professional and well-spoken, as she told the officer that she was driving home to York, although he couldn't help noticing the bruising on her face, which, he wasn't to know, had been caused by the recoil on the gun that had just killed Bob Wilkie. In the back of the car, he just happened to see a white robe in the footwell, which appeared to be covered in blood, which he assumed was fake. It was Halloween, after all. He moved it to one side to see a shotgun with spent cartridges. As he told Heather to get out of the car, he also saw that a knife was concealed in her waistband. Stevenson Snell was taken into custody, and detectives began to investigate just who she was, and what had led to these events of Halloween 2003. I should say I'm indebted to Vanessa Howard and her excellent book Women Who Kill for so much research that she did about Heather's past. Heather Stevenson was born in 1957 in Malta, where her dad was in the British Army. When she was seven, her parents split, and she went with her mum and brother to Canada before moving back to England 
where Heather went to boarding school in Kent, which she absolutely detested. She then moved to Scarborough in the northeast Yorkshire, where she lived with an aunt as her relationship with her mum had completely broken down and she had no contact at all with her dad. But although academically bright, she just didn't try hard at school, just about scraping some poor CSEs. And at this time she began to lie more regularly, something she would continue to do as an adult. Especially her lies were about her dad, who she claimed was either a spy or an author. In her late teens she discovered alcohol, and she also got in trouble with the police for a string of minor offences, petty theft and criminal damage. But then she met a man who ran a bookshop, and the two got together, married, and moved to beautiful Penrith in the Lake District, where by the time she was 21, she had a son, Solomon. But like her own parents, she struggled to make the marriage work, and by the time her son was seven, the couple had split up in a really messy breakup. But Heather wanted to make something of her life, and she took a social sciences course at the Open University, and then secured a place at York University to study psychology. When she graduated from York in 1990, she decided to become a counsellor, and she eventually set herself up in business from her home. But although she achieved a degree of success with this career, there were other parts of her life that were, well, a little different from her daytime dress of sober, conservative suits and listening to people mainly suffering from addictions and depression. She was fascinated by weapons, and she collected a whole range of them, including machetes, replica guns and knives. She enjoyed taking recreational drugs, and she continued to drink heavily. She was also interested in motorbikes and bike clubs, attending rallies, and in the end she headed one bike club based near her home in York called Stuff the Ironing. It was a 40-strong group that met in the garage she'd converted into a party room to drink and to listen to music. So how had Heather come to shoot Bob Wilkie in Radcliffe? Well, it all started in February 2002, when a man called Adrian Sinclair replied to her advert in the big issue, looking for a living dog sitter. Heather hired Adrian, an aspiring writer and former stripper who appeared in sex videos, to look after her two Rottweilers and they soon became involved in a relationship. She was certainly different to anyone he'd ever met before, and he spoke to the Mirror newspaper about their relationship in 2005, saying how often drunk and high on cocaine, she started to tell increasingly strange stories, boasting of attacking people who'd crossed her, and showing him guns and machetes hanging in her den. I thought it was all for show, he said. Her claims were just so outrageous. I just assumed it was bravado. The affair didn't last long for Adrian and he was spooked by her obsessive nature and he wanted to move on. So when Heather went to the US for a three-month study course, he moved away from the area without mentioning anything to Heather. But within days, she was bombarding him with sexually explicit letters and phone calls from the US. Adrian said, I'd had my address book stolen. It must have been her and she started ringing my friends and my relatives. She could be also very charming, so when she told my sisters she was in love with me, they of course believed her. Even when I got a new flat, letters started arriving there, and when I got a mobile, she started calling that. I didn't know where to turn, 
I couldn't see the police taking this very seriously, a woman pestering me from New York. It was at this time while staying in his hometown of Ratcliffe that he met Diane Lomax, a divorcee with two children, who lived next door to Bob Wilkie. I was scared of getting involved in case Heather targeted Diane and her children too, he sighed. I told Diane it was best for us to stay friends, and said all this had blown over. But Heather, being a psychologist, was a master manipulator. She'd had that sneaking suspicion about Adrian, and so naturally she cozied up to his sister to find out what was going on. And, of course, his sister accidentally revealed the truth that Adrian was seeing somebody else. When Heather came back to the UK, he told the mirror how he asked to meet her to ask for an explanation about what had been happening. But after a few beers, Adrian ended up sleeping with Heather, and this made her even more obsessive. Funnily enough, the sex with Heather had made Adrian realise that he absolutely didn't want to be with her, he wanted to be with Diane, and so they started seeing each other more seriously, and decided to make a fresh start and moved 30 miles away to Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. But the day they moved in, Adrian answered the phone and his blood ran cold. It was Heather. She asked me what the weather was like in Huddersfield. She knew where I was. This was meant to be our new start. We had no choice but to move again. They moved back to Bury, but Adrian was scared. I would stay awake all night, explained Adrian. I expected her to turn up and carry out the threats that she was increasingly making to us any minute. When he went to the police, they were unable to help. They said they couldn't do anything because there was no evidence, he claims. Until she actually did something to me, it was just no use, and I felt helpless, like we weren't being believed. Over the next few months, Heather was seen in Huddersfield, even following Diane and taking photographs of her as she collected her children from school. Wow, how creepy must that have been? She maliciously reported the couple to the police for child abuse, and of course no evidence of any wrongdoing was ever found, and she would often ring them up to 10 times a day. In one call, she told Adrian there was a £50,000 bounty on his head, called Diana a prostitute, and threatened to cut off her breasts. It was dominating their lives, and by October 2003, the couple's relationship was buckling under the strain. We had been determined she wouldn't split us up, says Adrian, but it was just too much. She was finding me whatever I did. It got to the stage where I didn't know who to trust. So hoping to get some breathing space, Adrian went to lodge with a friend, while Diane stayed at their home in Radcliffe. For a while it all went quiet. The phone calls stopped and Adrian assumed that Heather had finally decided to leave them alone. But Adrian didn't realise that this pause was while Heather took shooting lessons and seriously plotted Diane's murder. So by Halloween 2003, she'd worked out escape routes, she'd researched Diane's home, and even stored possible escape vehicles at the homes of friends. When police went to her house after the arrest, they saw that she'd even made the investigation a little easier for them, as her thorough preparation meant she designed index cards detailing her plans for the murder and her escape, as well as her plans to frame Adrian for the crime. Diane Lomax was lucky. It was the spy hole in the door of her house that saved her, as if she'd opened the door in the early hours of that Halloween, she'd have been shot dead. Heather Stevenson Snell 
was very odd during the police interviews. She lied constantly and was very particular about what she did and why. For example, she insisted that she could only eat bagels and nothing else. And at the police station, this strange, peculiar woman set down ground rules for the police, including how long the interview would proceed. It was as though she had to be in total control of the situation. She wasn't bothered by the interrogation. She spoke candidly, revealing what's been described as a histrionic personality. She craved attention and she couldn't tolerate rejection. Heather Stevenson Snell's trial was a very strange affair. She lied and lied again, even saying that she only shot Bob accidentally in a scuffle after he had struck her. Outrageous, isn't it, to say such a thing about a man she had murdered to save her own skin. She denied she had a sexual relationship with Adrian Sinclair and said she only sent the sexually explicit letters as a favour to him because he was receiving unwanted attention from a gay man. She told how on her return from America, Adrian met her at the airport and took her home, but he then put something into a beer she'd been drinking and that night raped her in her caravan. And she claimed that she only went to see Diane on the night she murdered Bob to warn her about Adrian. The jury weren't having any of it and they found her guilty. Mr Justice Wakeley described Stevenson Snell's meticulously planning and her lies to the court during her trial as breathtaking. He added that she always sought to be the centre of attention. You planned your escape meticulously. You had planned to frame Sinclair. Your lies were breathtaking and shameless, and I note that you have shown absolutely no hint of remorse at what you have done. You knew perfectly well what you were doing. He added, This crime was born of obsessional behaviour. There were innumerable occasions when you could have stood back from the course of action you were planning. He jailed her for life for murder, with a recommendation that she serves a minimum of 22 years. He also sentenced her to 18 years to run concurrently, after she was also convicted of attempted murder. In a statement after the trial, Bob's fiancée, Debbie, and brother Billy said, We thank all the police involved in the prosecution, for their hard work which enabled the lies of the person responsible for Bob's death to be exposed and for her to be removed from society for a long time. While the sentence will never compensate for the loss of a wonderful, kind, loving partner, brother and loyal friend to many, the verdict goes some way to addressing the balance. Talking to the Mirror paper in 2005, Adrian Snell, then 41, told how he and Diane had separated. The strain of what had happened had been too much to bear. They don't see each other now, as Adrian says, I want her to be free from all of this to get on with her own life. So I suppose that Heather got what she wanted in the end. She did manage to break us up. But it's more than that. Because of her obsession, an innocent man, Diane's neighbour, is dead. In the name of love she did all this. It just doesn't make sense. He also explained how he was still terrified of her. Last year, on Halloween night, he said he was beaten up by a gang of thugs who told him, this is for Heather. What has happened sounds like something from a Halloween horror movie, and I wish it was, but it's real life, he added. This woman set out to destroy my life and to kill the person closest to me. She nearly succeeded. One man has already died and I'm scared I'll be next. My Halloween nightmare isn't over yet. 
I just wish I'd never met her. I hate this time of year. It brings all the awful memories flooding back. I can't even walk into a shop without freaking out when I see Halloween masks. And I can't leave the house on the night itself because I'm just too terrified. My own Halloween ghosts are all too real. I still get flashbacks. I still have nightmares. I lost three stone and was on antidepressants. At this time of year, anything can set me off. I don't sleep at nights. And wherever I go, whatever I do in life, I'll always be looking over my shoulder. I'll never underestimate Heather. Even now she's behind bars, because there are people who will do her dirty work for her. And if that means getting me, they will. But she won't win. I can't let her win. I've got to keep going. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a really shocking story, isn't it? I know it is every week, but this week just seems... Just so shocking. And as Adrian said, she did all this for love. Love, obsession. It's a, it's such a terrible case. And it also seems so wrong that Heather's beef was with Adrian Sinclair. He wasn't even at the house when she turned up with the intention of murdering Diane that Halloween evening. And then her innocent neighbour, Bob, was murdered. And just when all was going so well in his life, it just feels so utterly Terribly unfair, doesn't it? And why did Heather Stevenson Snell, a trained psychotherapist, become a stalker and then a killer? In this podcast, we have touched on her childhood and seen lots of elements of rejection, which could have contributed. And this meant she felt she always had to be in control of every situation, which we've heard about in all areas of her life. And I suppose the final irony is now that she's locked up in the slammer, she's finally lost that control and there's absolutely nothing else she can do about it. Not until she is potentially eligible for parole seven years from now in 2016. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this case and any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join the 2,700 of us at the Facebook group. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime where you can access 29 full-length bonus episodes and there's lots more exclusive content there too. So next week I will be back with you live. I look forward to speaking with you then. But until then, take it easy and of course, stay classy. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.